Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. Today on the show, we have the honor of having the author of the new book, Troll Nation, the senior political writer for Salon, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. The book is going to drop on April 24th, 2018, released by Hot Books. And it has a, a subtitle, which is uh, Not Subtle. How the, how the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Blanking Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. What compelled you to, to delve into this topic? Well, um, mainly my um, the CEO at Salon asked me to write a book, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And so I sat down with the publisher and he said, what do you think is the most pressing question that political readers are going to have going into the midterms? And I said, I think people are still obsessed with the question of why it is that Donald Trump, of all people, somehow managed to win the presidency. I think, you know, even though I'll be the first to argue that he is, and, you know, obviously the book argues this in, in large part, that he is kind of the epitome of where republicanism has been going for a long time, you know, I think he strikes people understandably as an outlier, reality TV star, that sort of thing, you know, loudmouth, not politic person at all. So the the crux of the book, if uh, if I'm summing it up correctly, is that Trump's election was fueled by an army of of conservative trolls. So just to start at the very beginning, what do you mean by troll? I mean somebody whose main motivation is being a pain in someone else's butt, as it were. I guess I shouldn't curse on here. <laughs> um, you, you know, that the, the, there's sadism, right? Um, there's been research into online trolls and has found that they tend to have the what they call the dark tetrad of qualities, narcissism, Machiavellianism, sadism, things like that. You know, these, these really antisocial personality traits. And while I don't think that that's true of conservatives as a group, like obviously it's a diverse group, I do argue that their politics has been consumed by, has been consumed by this trollification that it has become a, the centerpiece of right-wing politics to behave like a troll, to, to prioritize goading and picking on and defeating liberals over any other actual values that they might have. So is there a difference between a conservative in 2018 versus a conservative of 1980 in, in Ronald Reagan's time? Yeah. And I, I want to be very clear that I think that, you know, culture war issues like gender, you know, sexism, racism, things like that have obviously been fueling the Republican Party for a long time. And Ronald Reagan was not above and in fact, probably kicked off this era of treating politics like this game where you you spend all your time needling liberals, you know, just to get a rise out of them. But I do think that 
for better or for worse, in the 1980s, there was a sense that the moral majority, for instance, made an argument for traditional conservative values about gender and marriage that had a point to it, right? There was this argument that traditional patriarchal marriage was somehow stabilizing for society. Um, There was an economic message about how cutting taxes would boost the economy. And I think to a large extent, there was a lot of believing in that. And I think what's happened in the past four decades, and this is really kind of what my book's about, is that conservatives have lost those arguments. They had some ideas over time, they've been tested and and they don't work anymore. I don't think people of good faith really believe in these arguments anymore. And so what they're all they're left with is bitterness, hate, resentment, just pure reactionary politics with absolutely no creamy center, as it were. Uh, so one of the topics in your book that you uh, delve into is this question of political correctness. Uh, Donald Trump sold himself as an antidote to political correctness. Um, does he have a point? Is there a real issue of political correctness stifling ideas and dialogue and therefore being someone who would speak in an unvarnished way had had genuine appeal? You know, that's a really good question. And I really wish I had like a sharp talking point. This comes up a lot. People are obsessed with the idea of political correctness. And, you know, the first thing I would say about political correctness as an idea is that it is a deliberately vague category, right? And I think that's by design. You know, political correctness is used to define anything from actual movements to deplatform conservative speakers to prevent them from speaking in public to hazier things like boycotts or even just very, very pointed criticism of conservative ideas. So in a sense, it's really just a way for conservatives to talk about how they're victims of liberal censoriousness as opposed to actually talking about ideas. And I think that that's because they know their ideas aren't going to win. But I think the most important thing to remember about political correctness as a category is it is used to, to demonize any pushback whatsoever to conservative ideas. Any. Um, you know, Donald Trump claims he's a victim of political correctness if anyone gives him the side eye. So let's let's be uh, more precise. Often, if uh, someone is criticized for saying something that's that's racially insensitive or outright racist, a response can be, "You're being politically correct. I'm just I'm just trying to tell the truth or, or speak honestly or, or, or what have you." Uh, so people called Donald Trump racist during the campaign. He came back and accused him of political correctness, and he's president today. Uh, so what, what what can be said about this dynamic where if you try to speak about racism, uh, b- being called politically correct seems to be an effective response? Well, and I think that this cannot be emphasized enough. It is an attempt to avoid discourse, and I think that's important because people who – accuse others of political correctness often say they want a rowdy, like hands-on discourse, but I think the opposite is true. So for instance, in the sort of dynamic that you, you, you offer, like Donald Trump says something racist, he gets criticized for that racist comment by liberals. And he goes, ah, you're being politically correct. I'm a victim of political correctness. That's an attempt to shut down discourse it is an attempt to not debate the racist idea because he knows that the racist idea will lose in that debate. What it is is about 
trying to portray certain ideas, racism, sexism, homophobia, as these scintillating ideas that are too dangerous to be talked about, you know, in public and to, to kind of romanticize them, to make them seem attractive and to make them seem daring without actually having to do anything, you know, as boring or hard as actually defend these ideas. Now, your criticism about uh, conservatives that employ political correctness as a retort is not just limited to conservatives. You also had some words for uh, Jonathan Chait, who writes for New York Magazine and is generally on the left, but he has been critical of what he sees as uh, politically correct uh, uh, attempts to stifle dialogue uh, amongst the left. Um, where, where do you think Chait is off base? Uh, you know, he's not the only one. I single him out because he, you know, did that huge New York features piece about it. And I think that, like, and it is unfortunately a lot of white men who take this particular bait. I think it, it's an attractive idea, I think, to a lot of white male liberals, this notion that anti-racism and feminism are somehow censorous because I think that they're attracted to that for the same reason conservatives are, which is they don't like being called out, you know, (laughs) and they would like that to not happen. But what I found interesting when I read and I reread Chait's um, feature to write this piece about it. And when I really got in and analyzed it, what I found fascinating about it was that he had very little in the way of actual examples of leftist censorship going on. What he had instead was examples of leftists engaging people in discourse, right? So he, for instance, was really, really annoyed by the idea of microaggressions and flipped out at people labeling, you know, racial insensitivity or gender insensitivity as a microaggression. But I fail to see how that is suppression of free speech. What that is, is criticism and an attempt to engage somebody in discourse. Like this thing you said is offensive. This is why. And, you know, kind of trying to tease that out, but flatly treating all criticism like it's censorship is just intellectually dishonest. And I, I don't know why it's so attractive to some centrist liberals, but I do think that they are kind of playing the role of the useful idiot for conservative politics when they do that. Now, you express some nuanced views on the subject as well. Uh, you note in the book, uh, Troll Nation, that your own views regarding uh, protests of campus speakers has shifted in recent years. Can, can, you, can you explain your evolution on that question? Yeah, and I think I'm constantly evolving on it. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I really don't think that these no-platforming movements are helpful because they only feed into um, the conservative narrative where they are victims. And I think you could even make an argument that heckling speakers does the same thing, you know, because so many people are clearly eager to believe that the right is being censored, that you really kind of want to make it clear that I think that it's, it's wise not to play into that. You know, that said, I do think that liberals should protest offensive and racist speech. I think if Charles Murray comes to your campus or Ann Coulter or any of these trolls that, that conservative student groups are bringing to campus because they are trolls, I think that it's useful to protest them. I think you just need to be smart about it. And I know it's not sexy, but I do think that there is a lot 
of expert experienced opinion that says the way to be smart about it is to go outside of the speaking area and offer a counter arguments as opposed to these kind of shout them down protest. You also uh, talk about the case of James Damore, the uh, Google employee who uh, sent around an internal memo expressing his thoughts about uh, women in technology uh, and then was fired by Google. Uh, uh, and that is, he's become a cause celeb on, on the anti-politically correct right. Here he was expressing his views about some women aren't as good in certain positions in the te- technology industry as others. He gets fired for expressing his views. That's political correctness um, uh, at its worst. You actually lose your job. Uh, that that's not your take on the on the question, I assume. No, and you know what's really funny to me? I think the James Damore whole debacle like was interesting to me for the book because it proves, I think, my argument, my larger argument, which is that Troll Nation has kind of gotten away from any traditional basic conservative values. You know, I would consider um, right to work laws (laughs) and the belief that a private company can choose to hire and fire whoever they want at will for any reason to be a classic conservative position. And yet that was abandoned in a heartbeat in order to justify a situation where this person did a thing that's only value was to aggravate and annoy liberals to, to collect those liberal tears as it were. Uh, Like what is the point of James Damore sending a memo out to his colleagues that basically implies that women are born inferior, if not just to get under their skin and, and make the women that he works with feel insulted, but that need to insult people that need to aggravate people trumped even this basic notion that Google should have a right to hire and fire who they want. Now, you um, trace this dynamic uh, to the Trump administration in the hiring of Stephen Miller as Trump's one of, key, one of his key aides in terms of immigration. Um, how has this uh, politically correct backlash actually influenced how Trump governs? You know, he... Trump and I think Stephen Miller, to a large extent, really do think of politics as kind of an elaborate game of trolling people. And, you know, Miller clearly thinks that he's winning whenever he's making people angry. His his smirking, bad faith arguments um, seem to have no real value outside of he gets a rise out of angering people. I mean, I think he's sincerely racist, to be clear, but I think that a large part of what drives him every day to say racist things or to hint at racist things is because he thinks that it, it, you know, angers the correct people. It gets under liberal skin. And, you know, I think Donald Trump um, is very similar. He says things and he'll often even in his speeches, like say things and then immediately you know, follow it up by saying, oh, they're going to love that in the media. They're going to like have a field day with it, that kind of rhetoric. He'll say an offensive thing and then talk about the reaction he's going to get. And the crowds go wild. And I think that that's a dynamic we shouldn't, you know, overlook. There's this sense that everything should be about 
the them being the liberal media and getting angering them and aggravating them is, is so central to his presidency. It's hard for me to separate it from anything else he does. And, you know, I think a lot of his policy ideas have kind of been driven by this too. Like the transgender ban, you know, was very much like a desire to get under his critic skin. Uh, the Muslim ban, I think, was very much driven by this notion that it's going to draw protests, it's going to get a rise out of people, and, and that kind of assists the tribalism that Trump is all about stoking. A lot of his cabinet appointments um, and lower, you know, just political appointments in federal offices generally a lot of it seems to be they go out and they find the most offensive human being possible and give them the job. You know, the number one qualification for having a job in the Trump administration is that you oppose the progressive agenda of whatever agency you've been in char- put in charge of. So I think it, it just kind of, it's shot all the way through the way he governs. Uh, in the book, you write that sexual harassment like overt racism, is one of those forms of trolling and bullying that exists in a gray area for conservatives. What, what do you mean by that exactly? Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? <laughs> so uh, in, the book, in the book, you write, sexual harassment, like overt racism, is one of those forms of trolling and bullying that exists in a gray area for conservatives. Are you saying that conservatives um, don't have a, a, a clear opposition to sexual misconduct the way others in, in a, on the political spectrum do? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's true in general with trolling type behaviors and bullying type behaviors. There's, there's an actual limit to how far you're willing to go, like needling somebody and getting joy out of it. Um, does have limits. You you see on with the like in the overt racism kind of category. You see a lot of Republicans enjoy, you know, implying racist ideas, but they very rarely will just come out. They're not going to come out and say the n word. They're not going to come out and endorse the KKK, right? Um, so there is a, a red line, and I think sexual harassment has interestingly been one of those places where you see conservatives haven't quite figured out where they stand on it. When Donald Trump, that tape came out of him bragging about sexually harassing women, bragging about sexually assaulting women. It was interesting to me how many conservatives knew that coming right out and saying that they thought that was funny and they agreed with him, like whether they believe that or not, they weren't going to say it. Right. I mean, I think you've seen a few people like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos like openly bragged about how he was impressed by Trump's willingness to say such terrible things. But for some reason, I think that, you know, grabbing women, sexually assaulting women, mocking women in that way um, felt like a bridge too far, I think, for some conservatives. But on the flip side, they all voted for him anyway and made excuses for it. So I think that's kind of what I mean by gray areas, which is like, there are still some standards that, that conservatives feel like they at least have to pay tribute to, even if they're not going to actually like live the values that they're claiming to hold. Do you think there were a lot of conservatives or I should say a lot of elected Republican officials 
who thought after that Access Hollywood tape incident that Trump would surely lose. How could any candidate uh, survive that? Uh, and there was an attempt to distance themselves from him. Do you think there's some genuine surprise that that was not the case and that so-called troll nation actually proved dominant in the election, not just in spite of that tape, but perhaps because of it? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans were caught flat-footed about how bad bad things have gotten in their own base. I don't know if they would think of it as bad necessarily. Again, this is not new with Trump. This has been going on for decades now. You know, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, all these talk show radio guys have really kind of pushed the idea for decades that you know, anything is within bounds as long as it aggravates liberals. And Republican politicians have played along with it because it gets them votes. But I think a lot of them were genuinely surprised that somebody as awful and in your face about it as Donald Trump could win the presidency. Um, You can tell, too, that a lot of them they're behaving as if it's basically open season now, right? I think that we've seen since Trump got elected an escalation of trolling style rhetoric because, you know, a lot of people have realized or have, I think a lot of people have decided that if Trump could win, LOL, nothing matters, right? So you can kind of do more of what you wanted that I think a lot more Republicans are a lot less afraid than they used to be um, to just sort of say offensive things or do offensive things. We're talking with Amanda Marcotte, the author of Troll Nation on New Books in Politics for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Um, getting back to how Troll Nation affects Trump's uh, governing, uh, you have a chapter on the environment. And you note that uh, you write in the book, huge chunks of the right wing agenda on the environment have nothing to do with the venial impulses of capitalists. It's about hating liberals. Uh, Why is it what is it about fossil fuels that makes this not a simple question as support for free market capitalism? Is that not the principle that Trump's environmental policy is being governed by? It's a very complicated question, obviously. there. I, I want to be clear. I have no doubt that oil and gas and coal industries have handsomely spent on lobbyists um, for the Republican Party, and they are paying them back with anti-environmentalist policies. On the other hand, I do think that there is a complex argument about the future of our economy that I find a little surprising how quickly Trump, especially, but like Republicans in general are willing to like blow off, like not only the Paris Accords, but just sort of the energy industry in general, a lot of companies have been moving forward with this notion that clean energy is the future, whether they like it or not. And they've been building their, their, you know, their profit models and plans around, this notion that clean energy is the future. So for instance, you know, I think we saw that with Scott Pruitt recently with these emission standards, he made a big to do about how he's rolling back the Obama era emission standards. Well, the fact of the matter is that the car companies met the previous emission standards easily. 
um, they actually were able to do so a lot cheaply than the Obama administration had estimated. These new emission standards were sort of based on the notion that the future of cars is in electric, the future of cars is in less gas usage. I don't think that while some car manufacturers were bristling against emission standards, I think that they were mostly, by and large, okay with it and felt free to live with it. So at a certain point, a lot of things like rolling back emission standards is marginally beneficial to corporations, but maximally beneficial towards the goal of whatever Obama did was wrong and we want to reverse it, if that makes any sense. Um, so do you, would you say that, uh, you, you can't convince a conservative to, uh, suspend support for any, I mean, a lot of fossil fuels get subsidies to get preferential treatment from, uh, the federal government, you know, a libertarian would say, let's just not give any subsidies to any form of energy, clean or, or dirty, let the market take care of it. Um, you talk about rolling coal as something that doesn't have where coal is used to power cars directly, uh, something that isn't uh, cost efficient. Because <laughs> they seem to like doing it just because it makes liberals mad. Do you do you do you think that is the the driving ethos of of uh, Trump's EPA? Obviously, I can't get into their heads, but I have been absolutely blown away at how much Scott Pruitt seems flatly disinterested in any kind of corporate profit model that engages clean energy at all, of which there are many. And I, you know, the solar industry is got, is employing more Americans now than coal. Um, solar is where it's at. Like a lot of rural red state areas have actually started to move towards clean energy because it makes money for the area. So like where I grew up, for instance, in West Texas has a lot of wind farms now. And instead of investing in what's actually helping, you know, a lot of these economies in the places where their constituents are voting, you're seeing people like Donald Trump and Scott Pruitt just completely double down on coal, which is a dying industry no matter what the government does, no matter how much subsidy the government puts into it. Coal is dying for market reasons. And I, their infatuation with coal, I think, defies all economic and rational sense. And so I, I circle back to what's left. And well, coal is a very notoriously dirty form of energy. It, it pollutes the air quite a bit, and that aggravates liberals quite a bit. <laughs> and I think it, it does become tribal at a certain point. Like, we're the coal people, you're the solar people, therefore coal is good and solar is bad. And and again, Trump talks about coal as if it's like magical. <laughs> like his affection for coal is is a little disturbing sometimes. Now, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, coal has been uh, a, a, a conservative uh, attribute uh, for some time. Uh, but when uh, people on the left talk about it in the, the blunt way that you have, this is a dying industry, let's think to the future, uh, Trump was able to turn that around and say, uh, and this, this happened with Hillary Clinton, where she made a reference to it, at, the, at these jobs dying, as a way to say, I'm, and I'm here to help you <laughs> transition. That message d- fell on deaf ears. Trump was able to come in and say, I'm just going to bring those jobs back. 
Uh, is there a way to talk about these issues in a candid way that don't generate that kind of backlash? I, re- I really don't know, because I think what you see with Donald Trump did was opportunistic, right? So I think Hillary Clinton, she said that about as nicely as I think you could. And her, her intention, if you listen to her comments in context, was crystal clear and compassionate and saying, like, look, here's a problem. The only solution is to transition people out of coal jobs and into clean energy jobs, which I, I must also add, I don't remember if she said this, but I will add, is better for their health as well. You know, coal miners suffer from serious medical ailments from working in coal mines for a long time. But what Trump was doing wasn't really a, about coal or the jobs. What he was doing was he was reaching past these kind of intellectual policy discussions towards that tribalism, right? He he was able to portray Hillary Clinton as somehow anti you and your job, not because of what she said, which was obviously not that, but because he was plugging into this notion that you know, these liberal feminist urban Democrats are elitists who sneer at you and, and are not you and, and you hate them and therefore you hate everything that they say and and you love me because I'm on your team and therefore you love everything I say. It There is no, I think what's difficult here when you ask, is there a way to talk about it is what I see happening is there's so much tribalism that nobody, that no one is listening to solutions. Like their, their brain shut off. Like Hillary Clinton is talking. She is a liberal feminist. Those people are bad people. Um, everything they say is elitist snobbery and I'm not going to listen to a single word and I'm going to interpret it as ungenerously as possible. And I don't know how to fix that problem. I really, I wish I did have the solution. Um, you also talk in the book about guns. Uh, you mentioned earlier you are from uh, rural Texas, West Texas. Uh, so you, you may be liberal and feminist, but you're not an, a horrible New Yorker or San Franciscan. Um, uh, and so you write in the book, I grew up in rural Texas and around guns, and I can safely say that most of them are useless for most people. Even hunting isn't as popular a hobby anymore. Most, gunner, most gun owners use them to feel tough and manly and, and dominant. Uh, so if, if this is really um, cultural and sociological and psychological uh, and not about the actual utility of the gun, uh, what do you say to those who are supportive of gun control uh, and, and unlike you are, are not from rural Texas uh, about the gun culture that so they can understand the, the nature of the issue? I'm I'm. A notoriously pessimistic and grim person, I think, on this issue as many others. And so what I would definitely say to people is that, and the scientific research backs this up, there's a great article in Scientific American that kind of um, distills a lot of this research. They're nicer about it than I might be, but like fundamentally what it, it is is that it's a lot of white men conservative white men who have seen their privilege declining over the years. And they have invested a lot of their identity in their white maleness, in the idea that the body that they were born into gives them this power and authority and that they somehow deserve it because of who they were born as, right? 
And having that challenged on a regular basis, seeing people of color and women starting to compete in the workplace to actually get closer to equality threatens them. And so they reach for the gun because the gun is this symbol in our culture of that sort of white male power. And, you know, the reasons for that are complicated. A lot of it is NRA marketing. Um, a lot of it, though, is just you go to the movies and, and are, there's a billion white male heroic characters wielding guns. The, you know, the idea that the gun sort of is both the symbol of white male power and also sort of the symbol of the rationalization for it. Like the white man is the, the violent hero who protects with his violence. Um, I think is all over our culture and, and it's not surprising that it gets invested in. And the other thing I'd add to that, unfortunately though, is the research also shows that a lot of men use their guns in a very naked and blunt way to assert power. You know, um, millions of women have reported being threatened. I think it's something like 4 million women in this country have reported being threatened by an intimate partner with a firearm. So it, 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 that's what it comes down to. And I think it's tough for a lot of people on both sides of the aisle to, to look at that bluntly, but it is unfortunately a fact. Uh, you, you mentioned that you're pessimistic and there are a lot of optimists out there that feel that after the Parkland massacre, that th this time is different and people are speaking out more. We've had the March for our lives. Uh, but is, is there something that's so deep seated, uh, in conservative gun culture, in so-called troll nation, that means this this won't be different. That that's a, that's an immovable force when it comes to uh, that uh, that desire to uh, maintain uh, gun rights. I think for those that are already invested in it, there's nothing you can do or say. And I think that's been made clear by the way that the the reaction to the Parkland kids has been shaped. And as soon as those kids started talking out, I knew in my soul and to my bones that it was going to turn into a situation where they were getting demonized. And that's unfortunately what happened. And I, I think the one thing that gives me optimism is that we still are facing demographic changes in this country that over time sort of tilt away from the gun industry. So young Americans are not interested in buying guns. That's um, an older, the demographic that buys guns, especially a lot of guns is aging out. They're incredibly tiny. 3% of Americans own 50% of the firearms in this country. The, the numbers of people that are interested in buying guns are kind of sliding backwards because I think the, the psychosexual dynamics that drive gun purchasing uh, just don't have as much of a hold over younger people. So I am optimistic in that way, but I think we might be up a creek when it comes to convincing people that love guns to stop being so irrational in their obsession. Uh, in the book, Troll Nation, you, you sound more optimistic when you talk about the recent election, election defeats of uh, Alabama's Roy Moore and Virginia's uh, Ed Gillespie in the governor's race there. Why do you think Troll Nation were, were not able, was not able to get those two elected? <laughs> uh, you know, if I'm being honest, when I first wrote my Roy Moore chapter, he um, looked like he was about to win, so I had to rewrite that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. I'm super happy that I was wrong and I had to do those last-minute rewrites because I, I think what – this all shows is that this notion that 
being, being terrified by the other side doesn't necessarily have to be only a right wing phenomenon. Right. And I, I would, I think that the left can sort of organize in reaction to Trump and troll into the troll nation without becoming their own kind of troll nation. Right. But I do think it's obvious that seeing Donald Trump get elected caused a lot of people that were complacent on the left to wake up and start organizing and start realizing that these problems don't just fix themselves. Um, I wish that people were motivated better by positive things, right? I, I wish that people could sit around and go, you know, I, I, I would like more and better health care and I would like um, a, sw- a faster switch to solar energy or, you know, a number of liberal agenda items. I wish that we had free college for everyone, you know. Um, I will give Bernie Sanders that, those kinds of things. Unfortunately, I think that the notion that your country is being taken away for you, from you and you have to fight to get it back is clearly more of a motivating like argument on both the left and the right. And the right's been motivated by that for decades now. Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, was a reaction to Barack Obama getting elected but I think that the same thing is now kind of happening on the left, which is we feel like our country that we love is being taken from us and we're fighting really hard to get it back. Um, you say in the book, we can't fix troll nation. Uh, and when you wrote that, uh, it reminded me that there was a video by the onion that was very popular uh, several months ago, which was titled Trump voter feels betrayed by president after reading 800 pages of queer feminist theory. Uh, which you know, sort of brought home that y- you can talk about this stuff with them, but they are in a whole different frame of reference, and that's not, and, th- and their views aren't aren't going to be moved or changed. Um, so, uh, uh, with that premise, what is your counsel to those who are trying to deal with uh, this dynamic? If you can't, if you can't reason with Troll Nation, what do you do? I think the answer then is to organize the left better. Um, I, I really, I, I, I really wish I had a better answer for people. I know, and I see, especially amongst white liberals, I think liberals of color have been on this page for a lot longer <laughs> that you can't, you can't reason with bigotry. You can't reason with irrationally, irrationality. You, you can't reason somebody out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. Right. Um, and I, I see a lot of people wanting to reach across the aisle and, and have these like they have this fantasy of these discussions with conservatives where they they calmly explain their point of view and conservatives go, gosh, I never thought about it that way. It, it just doesn't work. That's not that's not how people think about politics, especially in our day and age where everything's about identity and emotionalism and 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 actual culture war. But I do think that you can think of politics as a contest of power and a contest of will, and there's a place to win there. And I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that I think that Democrats, liberals, whatever you want to call them, seems to get this. I think um, despite all the New York, 8 million New York Times articles about going into Trump country and trying to like learn how people there think, what you're actually seeing on the ground in in like liberal communities is people are starting these indivisible uh, groups. They're starting community organizing and they're realizing that what you do 
is instead of trying to convince other people to join your side, you can you tell the you try to convince the people that are already on your side to be active, to vote, to knock on doors, to just sort of get people out and get them talking, get them in the streets. And I think that's how you win. Uh, the book is Troll Nation. Uh, the author is Amanda Marcotte, the senior political writer for Salon, published by Hot Books. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. 